Hi, Intermission listeners. It's been a long time since you last heard my voice. So, I thought it was important to give an update about the status of the podcast and offer a bit of transparency into why I disappeared for a little while. To put it bluntly, a lot of things happen in my life all at once, personally and professionally, and I needed some time to figure everything out. If you followed my Twitter presence, I've talked about some lifelong sleep issues that I've been finally addressing. And from there, some other things piled up, like moving and some mental health issues. That's all to say, thanks so much for your patience and support while I've been trying to get everything up and running again. By the time you hear this podcast, there will be some new branding for Intermission. I finally have a dedicated Twitter account at at IntermissionTFS, and I also have a spiffy new podcast logo, courtesy of Jared Mobarek. Thanks so much to all my previous guests, and I'm so excited to share this conversation with Susanna Gruder about George Slizer's The Vanishing. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to the Film Stage Show spin-off podcast, Intermission. I'm your host, Michael Snydell, and this is a podcast where a guest picks one film available on streaming that can be loosely defined as arthouse, foreign, or experimental, and we talk about it. The podcast begins with why the guests pick the film, and then it can go anywhere. Sometimes the conversation is entirely about the film, and other times it leads to entirely different subjects. If you enjoy this podcast or would like to support any of the other podcasts in the Film Stage family, we would love if you would contribute to the Film Stage show Patreon or even write a review for the show on your favorite podcast platform. It helps us a lot in getting to more listeners. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the episode. This episode of Intermission is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showcasing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film. Whether it's a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece, it's guaranteed to be either a movie you've been dying to see or one you've never heard of before. And there will always be something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, so you'll never spend more time looking for something great to watch and instead, you'll actually be watching something great. It's like your own personal film festival, streaming anywhere, anytime. Try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash filmstage. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmstage for a whole month of great cinema for free. This is Michael Snydell, and you are listening to the 13th episode of Intermission. Intermission is a spinoff podcast of the Film Stage Show, and my guest today is Susanna Gruder. Susanna, would you like to introduce yourself today? Sure. Um, I am a freelance writer and critic, mostly covering film. Lovely. And you came to me and said you wanted to talk about uh, George Slizer's The Vanishing, the 1988 version, not the almost universally maligned remake. (laughs) How would you describe The Vanishing? Yeah, so The Vanishing tells the story of a couple on a vacation from the Netherlands in the south of France. The wife goes missing and we end up sort of 
in bits and pieces finding out how, um, and we take the sort of unusual route of following the killer through his planning and execution of his abduction. Why did you want to talk about the vanishing today? Yeah, um, I wanted to talk about uh, one of my beloved, you know, most favorite films. And I, this was always at the top of the list. And I really wanted to sort of probe that and figure out why, because it's, it's a pretty disturbing film. Um, A lot of my favorite films are horror films. And this just feels like such, such an anomaly in the genre. It's not really horror. It's, it's kind of more thriller suspense, but it shook me in a way that I don't think I've recovered since like the six years ago that I first saw it and what I've heard from most people who who see it. And I, I think a film that has that kind of effect is worth discussing. What was your first experience uh, with it then six years ago or why did you initially decide to watch it? Yeah, I remember seeing the poster and always being intrigued by it and, you know, thinking that it sounded sort of like a supernatural horror film, like an M. Night Shyamalan or something. Mm. <laughs> That's not why I wanted to watch it, but I was just like, oh, I'm intrigued. And I didn't read anything about it. And I guess this is a good time to say that, like, there will be spoilers ahead. And <laughs> this is probably one of the most spoiler alert friendly movie. Like, it, you should not listen to the rest of this if you have not seen the movie. I would hate to ruin the experience for people. And so I went into it completely blind. I hadn't even read a synopsis or anything, and I advise that. So I was just completely floored. You know, it, it takes things to an extreme of the feeling of losing someone, but it, it really just relates to that universal feeling of what it feels like to be without someone who was once in your life. And I think it really reminded me of like what it feels like to end a relationship or to just feel someone the whole of someone in your life um, whether that person passed away or is just gone for whatever reason it captured it in a way that actually might have inspired me to do a little bit of writing about it before I was really writing film criticism and so I owe that to it. And yeah, I think that's what drew me to it. And I always had it as like a reference point for a lot of films that I would watch throughout the years. And I, But I knew that I never really wanted to watch it again. <laughs> so I was, I'm glad that this forced me to do it. <laughs> and I was, I was like having nightmares about watching this movie again, honestly. Oh um, no, I'm so sorry. No, <laughs> I know. <laughs> So thanks a lot. Um, but <laughs> no. yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny, you know, it's, it's not like s- jump out and scare you or it just has these, these ideas and images that like, I, I didn't know if I could face them again, but I did. And, you know, I'm here to tell the tale. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm curious. You said that you like a lot of horror films. So you mentioned that this was making you think more about losing someone. Like that was the the major feeling that you were were drawing from this. I mean, did you 
kind of link it to horror in that way? Or is this very much an outlier in terms of your relationship with these types of thrillers, I guess? Mm, yeah, it, it kind of feels like an outlier. I mean, I think the films that have affected me the most over the years, the majority probably veer into the horror category or at least the like unsettling category. What I liked about it was the feeling of like when you when someone disappears from your life that feeling of of not knowing and of wanting to know so badly like where they are what happened to them or even like I think at that time like we briefly lost a cat in our apartment and we were mm. without the cat for like 3 days and you know obviously it's not as extreme as what happens in the film but it was just this feeling of like where is he what is he alive is he is he dead like where where is he in on this block is he in another borough you know and and then like luckily he came back um but just sort of being able to vaguely understand that longing to to know that i guess the curiosity kills the cat really fits into that <laughs> anecdote Although, you know, luckily not in that case. I, I'm going to take in a, an even a cheesier segue there and say Schrodinger's cat would also uh, <laughs> fall into this uh, conversation because it is so interesting to me that this is a movie as obsessed with closure as, as it is mm. in, in a sense that like even beyond other films where, you know, they have a twist ending you know whether you want to point to Hitchcock or whether you want to point to other horror films about loss you know mm -hmm. vaguely from the time period like don't look now or, or something mm -hmm. like those are all films that have twist endings but they still kind of pale in comparison to me with this in the sense that like the ending is this movie <laughs> like it is it 100% is. Yeah, it's that one possibility that you know is the most likely. And he knows. He 100% knows. I mean, he <laughs> says, he's like, I had to give her up and say that she was dead so I could, you know, move on with my life. But he wants to believe that it's one of the other endless possibilities. Like, he wants her to be gone girl, you know? Like, he wishes that would happen. That's what happened, you know? Like, he wishes that she was off, like, living some other life, you know? Just so that he doesn't have to admit that it's that one horrible possibility. It's really just, like, a, a representation of wanting to and trying to escape death. I mean, it's like Orpheus and Eurydice. It's like he wanted yeah. to save her but he made that mistake of of looking back and, looking and back. he couldn't yeah. avoid death that is really interesting though because as much as this is a film about obsession when he's actually told these details he's so irritated <laughs> you, you know as we mm. finally have that confrontation with raymond and you know this film spends 30 minutes in the car <laughs> As yeah. he painstakingly explains not only the the physical process, but his, you know, psychological rationale. And Rex is not having it like this. No. <laughs> it's like, this is what you signed up for, dude. <laughs> <laughs> also, I did, but I, I was wondering, like, I mean, I know France and, 
and Holland are close, but he lives in the south of France. Like that's an 11 hour drive at least, or you know, that's a long drive there together. I, you know, I, I meant to look because there is like a really almost bizarre fixation on architecture in here. You know, mm. it's it's not only things like like Raymond rehearsing, you know, how to get directions to the drugstore. And and then Mm -hmm. a strange maybe projection where he sees someone who knows his daughter. Oh my God. I love that moment. (laughs) That's like one of like three touches of surrealism, which is another perfect thing about the restraint in this movie. The fact like there's that the tunnel, and the computer scene, which I completely mm. forgot about. I think I, ha- I like, have had a still from the names from Saskia across his computer screen as, like, my phone background for a while. <laughs> I love it, but if the movie, like, shook you this much, why would you want to be continually reminded? Uh, uh, yeah, good point. <laughs> it was a short time. It was a sh- brief moment. Brief moment. <laughs> There's also the moment, I mean, there's, I guess it's, it counts as surreal where he is revisiting the the place they were supposed to visit and like sees the car driving up the hill and sees himself and Saskia in it and proceeds to like have like a fit, like a, a half awake, half dreaming fit, like calling out her name. Which is is pretty brutal. And I I mean, it should be said that Elenica is a saint for staying with him as long as she she does. Going into a relationship where you... The ex was not only a, uh, you know, an ongoing... Oh an ongoing God. thing, but someone who had vanished and takes over. I, I don't want to say every second, because maybe there's a moment where he's in yes. the present. But yes. It, but <laughs> in a way, I feel like Raymond's rationale is all about the fact that the universe, the most straight way possible, is murdering this woman. And on the other hand, Rex is given every chance to move on. <laughs> Everything in his life has moved on. It's not like he is ever under suspicion from the police. Nothing Mm -hmm. comes from the uh, missing posters. Right, yeah. Although you might be able to say wanted if you wanted to be a little more, (laughs) get into pop psychology. But um, Mm. the universe, in a sense, to go back to that language, is it's really giving him any opportunity to move forward. Anything that he does, whether it's going on TV or responding to pretty sadistic letters when you think about it, like that is a detour, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is really fascinating to me in the sense that this is a juxtaposition of two very opposite pathologies, but both studies and obsession that might not totally fit. I'm just saying this as we're talking now, but there They're like two peas in a pod. Like, I think that's why they are so drawn to each other. I mean, I guess it's the classic, like, cat and mouse, you know, like, police 
criminal thing of like attraction almost an obsession i mean he's just a, a regular guy but he's he fits this description of um someone who takes something to the extreme in life in the same way that raymond does and and raymond respects that raymond says this is like a sign of that same desire to to push things to experiment that i thrive on and i think that i understand why rex continues the search and and even though he's given a million re- <laughs> reasons to <laughs> to stop you know i it's because he's nothing without this search this search is who he is at after 3 years like he knows he's not going to find her but he has just devoted all of his money all of his time to this search and it's the same with raymond i feel like he he has everything going for him as well he's like bourgeois living in south of france with a you know a job as a chemistry professor beautiful family who loves him worships him basically and that's not enough he's bored i mean that speaks to this idea that you brought up earlier when we were speaking in preparation for this about like the banality of evil and the people who sort of (laughs) lead these ordinary lives they're not like outwardly psychotic but they inwardly have this desire to live outside the bounds of society or outside of what society is and once he completes his experiment it's like it continues because now he's obsessed with the idea of rex and he taunts him for years and then when he finally has his way you can see at the end in the final scene this look of like he's dejected he's like he looks extremely like now he's just back to his regular life with his like lovely family and you you sense that same sort of like boredom that he probably felt so yeah they're exactly the same i think that there are at least a few times in this film where you can have a a branching speculation about whether he would have killed any of these other women i I mean there's the hitchhiker there is the other women that he lures into his car and maybe Mm -hmm. that's just him rehearsing how this would go and the certain language he uses to draw someone in and even with the hitchhiker you could say (laughs) just on pure principle he will not pick up this hitchhiker because she's in (laughs) fact with her partner but Mm -hmm. It does leave open an an interesting question, like how much of this interior life are we either not seeing or is not being fulfilled by making this into something larger than an obsession? It it is very weird to me that he doesn't (laughs) move on from Rex in in a way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do you think that Rex's TV appearance Mm -hmm. is the certainly not a breaking point, but I I guess the inflection point for Raymond finally saying, okay, I'm going to actually meet this person after years of almost meeting him. Mm, Yeah. I I mean, he's looked in the eye, you know, across the TV screen basically and challenged by this man. I think he sees the desperation and he sees an opportunity to take 
take things just a step further. And also, I mean, he is, his whole thing is like going against what is expected, right? Like that's why he yeah. j- he jumps um, as a child to prove that, you know, the l'appel du vide, like the <laughs> feeling we have when we are standing on top of a building and want to jump off. I, I don't know if that's defying it or, or going with it, but like that you can act on that desire and just because it's not what's supposed to happen it can totally happen so it's like everything's telling him you know you're fine no one's ever gonna find out this this guy can just go on with his obsession but he's probably has this thing in the back of his mind that's like what if I proved that I could meet the person who everything is telling him to turn me into the police but I'm gonna meet him and I'm gonna like work him over to the extent that I will be able to dominate him as well. Entomb him. Well, that I'll be able to entomb him, exactly. I mean, what is so great about Bernard... Oh boy, I'm going to butcher this. I, I think it's Bernard Pierre Donadieu. Donadieu, yeah. Is, is there's just such a perfectly imperfect uh, symmetry to him. I, I, I wear that sounds redundant, but I have been struggling with this juxtaposition of... Uh, uh, Raymond's performance and Slazer's direction, which is, it's so clean <laughs> that it feels invisible at times to the mm. point where like a slow pan at a table, then to a, 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 you know, a reverse shot at a balcony, which should be in a very audacious move is totally intuitive. Like, like mm-hmm. there's something oddly like, invisible in its like intention uh in a way that goes against so much about like the audacity of this film like yeah like this is not zodiac this is not you know memories of of murder these films that are so meticulously constructed and i don't mean to just go to contemporary ones but i think the lack of exertion in this film, in terms of moving narrative forward, I don't, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but it's there's something kind of uh, almost miraculous to me about the fact that this is so light <laughs> in its mm-hmm. touch. Yeah, it has that kind of like late 80s, early 90s, like Western Europe you know everything's kind of pastel vibe like it just feels lighter than it than it is you know and i think that's that juxtaposition too is what attracts me to it like it doesn't feel like the typical setting for this kind of film and the, the direction doesn't either and this might be a stretch as well but i feel like i, I don't know i always, i keep relating slicer to raymond in the in the sense that like i mean when Raymond finally is able to, you know, catch his victim. It's completely by accident and it's pretty effortless. Although all of his previous tries were completely bumbling and awkward and just a mess, really. And (laughs) Slicer's filmography kind of feels the same way. Um, (laughs) Like this is, this was his one success, really. And it was absolutely perfect, feels effortless, and, you know, did the job. 
<laughs> but everything that came before and after didn't quite do it. Well, Adam Naiman at the at the Ringer actually made a fascinating a comparison because I, we already mentioned that there is a a remake that people really hate, and to spoil that, but not to go in depth. That is a far, far lighter, <laughs> uh, less horrifying uh, ending. And mm-hmm. I should say Slizer also directed the remake. I, I'm quoting Adam here in this Ringer piece, and he says, I've always liked to think that Slizer's reasons for directing the remake were more than mercenary. Maybe that they mirrored Ramon's warped but relatable rhetoric. Having created something essentially perfect, the director had to do the most horrible deed he can envision at the uh. moment. <laughs> Which was to deface his masterpiece. (laughs) That's so good. Yeah, I mean, why did he do it? It would be nice to think that he actually, that was his intention. Um, We'll we'll, we'll let, we'll believe that. We'll give, we'll give him that, that it was like an artful flop. I I mean, I can't help but make comparisons, even though the philosophy is, I'd say, much uh, harsher and the tone is more glib. But uh, looking at Michael Haneke's Funny Games and then Mm. its shot for shot remake, you could make some interesting comparisons as well there in the sense that only (laughs) with the same director remaking it can we really show this is lightning in a bottle. Mm -hmm. and, And I am curious, is Funny Games something thing uh that you took to uh, in the same way as this as i've certainly heard those endings uh the ending of the vanishing and funny games compared although i i might quibble with the again the tone and the psychology of those characters i'm a haneke fan for sure um as polarizing as he is and i it's it falls into the camp of films that i loved but would never want to see again both of them and yeah i've i i've definitely compared this film to that this feels much more naturalistic obviously um but it has that same sense of nihilism that i'm drawn to i think it's just so so bold and unexpected to to make a film that has so little hope and it's not necessarily that i my beliefs align with these films it's that i i'm refreshed by them (laughs) in a twisted way it just sort of like it makes me feel like there's just more possibilities for storytelling like I go to the movies to be moved like to be (laughs) taken somewhere that I wouldn't normally be taken and and both of those films or all three of them um or all no not all four of them not the vanishing (laughs) remake um you know take us somewhere that like we that's kind of scary to go and that we don't really go unless we're dragged <laughs> it, it is funny you use the word uh, nihilism because i was uh, that was something i was using before i uh, after i watched this film and i'm like you know what it's been too long since i've actually looked up the meaning of nihilism and, and i was like mm-hmm. I don't know what to make of this uh, film's sometimes characterization of nihilism because, I mean, Raymond isn't a nihilist. Like, as a sociopath, oh God, if I have any psychiatrists or psychologists in my audience, I'm sure I'm gonna uh, make them mad with <laughs> these jumps. But like, as a, <laughs> as a sociopath, like, 
you know, you could say that he doesn't have, you know, normal emotional responses to people and and he maybe doesn't believe in values other than as like counters, but he does truly believe that the universe is creating a path for him. Like he mentions predestination multiple times. Yeah. But uh, Rex's entire journey is nihilism in the sense that nothing can truly be known. Anything that's remotely a breadcrumb is editorialized to a way that it's totally useless. Yeah. I think what is interesting to me about The Vanishing is I think I probably am someone who finds this as an outlier and something I don't find cheap. I am definitely someone whose reaction to the denouement of of something can be enough to completely sour me on a Mm. a film. So I can't quite put my finger on why this film that admittedly did rankle some people at the time of its release as, as being totally pointless. Jonathan Rosenbaum actually (laughs) made the, uh, the funny metaphor that he said, by the end, you might feel like you were taken around the block rather than you were taken (laughs) Anywhere, which is not necessarily something I could disagree with, but might (laughs) put that as as a plus in some odd way. I have really been trying to come up with some why some of these films out how the vanishing could be seen as an influence on on future films, and I think that was a hopeless thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) There's no hope. There's absolutely no hope. Well, I I mean just. Relating the ending to the endings of these other films are are just the reason why, despite its hopelessness, I think people eventually came to appreciate it and it came to be what cemented the film's reputation as as this this cult film. I, I feel like The Vanishing were, were aligned with the victim more so, and we are put into the position of wanting to know the same way that you're in the position of wanting to know what happens in any mystery, but we experience what he experiences, which is what she experiences. Like, it's just this reverberating effect of, like, putting us into that mindset of, like, following things a little bit too far, like, finding out a little bit too much and and digging your own grave, literally. And yeah, we want to believe that this could never happen, that a director would never go this far, that they would never Never actually show us what like is in the back of our heads you know and it does and we're literally with him in his grave and I feel like you're shell-shocked at the end of it the same way that you're probably shell-shocked at the end of these other films but like it makes you question these needs to know things that I think about with like the popularity of videos that people watch of you know horrible things of snuff videos or beheading you know just like Yeah, exactly. And why um, why we need to follow those instincts through and how it really never ends well. You, you could definitely relate that to that impulse in, in slashers. I, I mean, one of my favorite slashers series lately is, is The Unfriended and Unfriended Dark Web, two films mm. that are extremely sadistic to people who who probably don't deserve it but but again they want to know i i mean they're continually put into places where the die was already set <laughs> in in a mm-hmm. way like uh, you did that action and all of those dominoes they're so much farther 
than where you are at, at that moment. I mean, I guess funny games as well is, is very much anti-catharsis, but one scene that I particularly noticed this time is the first time that Ramon and, and Rex meet face to face. And Rex starts beating him up and the camera almost never gives him a sense of either power a sense of mm. like agency to that moment. You see two kids who are kind of disturbed by it. You get a very kind of not obtuse, but a, a wide shot that's just very awkward in in a sense. Like it is fascinating to me, and maybe it was just the choreography, but none of the you know the blows he tries to land that Rex tries to land on Raymond. None of them have power. None of them, no. you know, 25 minutes in is our first introduction to Raymond. <laughs> and I don't know. I, I almost like get the sense that Slezar like cares a lot more than, <laughs> finds Raymond far more interesting than, yeah. than Rex. And, and I think the yeah. most interesting things about Rex here are that his conversations with Saskia, I can't believe we mentioned, haven't mentioned Saskia's name yet. Saskia? Uh, Saskia. Saskia. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, thank you for the correction. Uh, but mm-hmm. um, like Rex and Saskia's interactions I, at the beginning of the film, like they always start playful and then they hit a moment where they have to get emotional and, you know, which obviously ends with them running out of gas in the tunnel. And then later when they're at the rest stop and she's like, uh, don't ever leave me. I want to drive or I want to drive on the highway. And it's this, again, weird fluctuation between a very playful tone and then a moment that becomes really solemn and emotional. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't really have characterization other than just like this naked desperation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that you brought up their relationship after talking about his powerlessness physically over Raymond because their entire relationship is about power and think that part of the reason that he is so obsessed with this is that he feels like he worries that he actually did lose her because of something that like he did um Mm. because he feels this sense of inadequacy i think compared to her i mean he is he's nothing like he's probably a perfectly normal guy like he's easy to relate to because he is a blank slate and he takes on these worries and those that becomes his entire personality but from the beginning of the film it's all her and the fact that she is what like is remembered and that she is you know she won an award when this film came out and she went on to have like a fair amount of success and you know Kubrick who was a huge yeah. fan of this movie went on to cast her in his you know canceled Holocaust film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's wonderful. She, and you know, as an actress, but also just the character is, is super strong and it's borderline like manic pixie dream girl, but like she, you know, and then she just disappears, but she's a bit flighty. She's, she clearly brings like a lot of sunshine into his life. She's dressed like sunshine and she, you know, (laughs) she's wearing all yellow and she has these freckles and red hair and Rex is sort of this like brooding Dutch 
dude. Um, <laughs> and I mean, they clearly make each other happy, but like there's this horrible sort of need he has to like bring her down. It's super toxic. And, you know, when, when he walks out of the tunnel, when he leaves her, he's smiling. It's sick. Yeah. And, and you can tell that like, he feels powerless and of course when she disappears it's like that makes everything so much worse what do you make of of linica that then as this what does she see in him (laughs) yeah that's a good question i mean he's an attractive guy except he looks pretty run down by (laughs) by that point in the film when they flash three years later like he looks like it's you know things are getting to him um he's like bags under his eyes hair is kind of greasy but you know i'm sure they were dating i guess for eight months they reveal um because she says it will take four months to get over him half the time that they dated that's right and we don't really get to know her that well like we don't know if she has some burning desire to like fix him up i mean in the remake they really that character is like becomes one of the main characters that's nancy travis isn't it nancy travis plays his his new girlfriend who like sees him looking sad at a diner and she's a waitress and she tries to like she's like honey you've got to go to the back there's a cot you know like take a nap i'm not giving you coffee you're getting milk like it's very aggressive and like not attractive but for some reason they end up together and she saves the day in the end. Lunica is much more like Dutch, you know, removed and yes. like can't really be bothered and she seems great. She also is is there for him and she's helping him with this. I mean, maybe she lost someone. I don't know. I'm inventing things that are not. But I think she does recognize that like or she, maybe she wants to recognize that underneath this search is just someone who is going through he's more he's in mourning you know um mm. and that's very human and she, she doesn't quite realize like how extreme it is until he has this episode when they go they retrace the steps she's trying to exercise Sa- saskia from their life basically and mm. they go and retrace the steps of their trip and the house that they never got to go to to stay in and she's like let's go lie in the grass you know they are trying to meet Raymond who's like lured them down there and he never shows up so she's like there's much better things to do like let's go lie in the grass together and and he ends up breaking down and shouting out her name and it reminds me of of Rebecca or yeah. a vertigo situation of like this this ghost of the of the ex <laughs> there's this figure like haunting the relationship um, I think if anyone is haunting this film it's Laurent Fignon <laughs> Shows up. His name is mentioned so much in this. Like, what do you have any feelings about the constant radio background about this oh. French cyclist? Yeah, <laughs> so weird. It's so um, so French. Um, yes. I think it's it's the yellow jersey, which is hard to to ignore. I mean, Saskia as a and her yellow motif and then the the motif of the the golden egg which is the 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 nightmare that Saskia has where she's like trapped in a golden egg which is also the name of the novella that the film is based on by Tim Crabbe a Dutch writer slash cyclist and she's trapped in the golden egg and can't escape and the nightmare she recounts us it's the first it's a recurring dream but this time she, there's another egg with her there's yeah. another floating egg which is a premonition and foreshadowing to the two of them dying together like doomed lovers 
But it's obviously sort of this this thing that is distracting everyone at the rest stop from really noticing what's going on. But it also, mm. for me, it just kind of feels like it's this idea of like gamemanship and power struggles like that are first it's between Rex and Saskia, like who's going to come out on top, who's going to be the smarter one, who's going to make the right decision. And then between, yeah. Crabbe was also a chess player, um, like a professional chess player Mm. so i think there's this idea of like one-upmanship and trying to outwit the other person and yeah just having this like running commentary on the tour de france is makes me think of that it's also just like it's a fun little background device one more thing that i just didn't remember being as uh, prominent in this is the the sound design it's Mm. it's fantastic like it it's so lucid and i mean that main set piece i mean you know you could analyze that just with the sound on which interestingly enough this this film seems like it was made into a radio play um Mm -hmm. and i think you could tell everything that was going on in that uh, in that rest stop, you know, without even seeing it because you just hear, you know, the clinking of her uh, going into where the frisbee is, getting change, uh, her mm. fumbling with with French to uh, Raymond, like. <laughs> It's like orchestrated with such precision. I, I I wonder how many times they uh, they went yeah. through that exact you know circuit. <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. Like, and he, I know, it was very carefully choreographed, and each one of the extras was you know put in this spot specifically. And and yeah, I mean, that just the the idea of a rest stop is something so familiar. So yeah, we recognize all those sounds. Um, like everyone's been through them um, and you don't think about it. It's like something that's just like, it's, it's sort of a, just a little, a little pause and you know, you, you don't know where you are. The further disorientation of the two of them, mostly of Rex, of just being at a rest up, you know, when you stop at one, you're like, I, this looks exactly like the one <laughs> 20 <laughs> miles ago. Like I could be literally anywhere sure. like this. There's a McDonald's and the, looks the exact same on the other side of the road like it's like these these weird twilight zones and for Raymond it's like he knows it back and forth he's been going there like you know living there basically hanging out there drinking coffee after coffee and like just that sort of adds to the power differential between the two of them but all and also just it being such a banal place for something to happen and you would never think to set the primary action of a film in a place like this which makes it that much more terrifying because we've all been to these places and like there are so many people and as the cashier says yeah like what she's like ten thousand people come in and out of here every day like of course i don't remember every single one who crosses my path but yeah the way that you could sort of reconstruct the action from the sound i think comes from that familiarity as well it's really funny to me that like for even a moment rex is annoyed that any of these people can't remember saskia and he can't describe her (laughs) to the cashier as well he has the picture thankfully but wouldn't you be the same at, like if if oh, that same. had happened to you you'd be like no 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 this the everything needs to stop everyone stay where you are we need to count we need to look at all the change yes. and make sure that that his fingerprints aren't on it and they're just like you're insane no we can't do that and but i totally understand like i would i would be exactly the same he is like he's the he is just the quintessential like lost frustrated and desperate 
forest. I mean, maybe this again speaks to the power dynamics between Saskia and, and, and Rex, but they're married. That's This is like their honeymoon. I, I believe so. I thought I wrote that down. But... I can't remember if it's their honeymoon, but they are married. Okay. I, either way, they're going on holiday. But I, I mean, again, uh, that could maybe speak to the power dynamics that he's so self-involved and likes the idea of having this wife who he has this, you know, patriarchal dynamic with that he can't remember what she looks like. And, and I mentioned I mentioned that because I guess if we're talking about vanishing girl films, you, you know, we were trying to brainstorm some things before we talked, you know, whether it's uh, La Ventura, whether it's Twin Peaks, uh, and Firewalk With Me, uh, yeah. you know, how does this compare to you with a lot of those, I, I guess, vanishing girls films? <laughs> mm-hmm. odd, but There's a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, uh, it's a reflection of the fact that this obviously happens more to women. I was thinking about this and as I was rewatching this film and, and thinking about these movies and how the fact that a lot of these are about women, um, especially the fact that they're about women who are kind of enigmas, um, Mm. more so than, than their, their friends, um, this, and, and that all of these films are, are made by men that this, this is, of it's this thing about like this, the unknowability of women, like what is going on inside that head, you know? And like, I don't mean that to reflect negatively on, on men. Like, I, I think it's, it can be a kind of beautiful exploration sometimes, but it, it does like sort of depict this like burning desire that that both genders have to get inside of the the other's heads and the fact that they disappear sort of is just a a, a continuation of this like um mysteriousness this and enigmatic nature that all of these women have i mean i think of you know burning from a few years ago and this love triangle with two men and one woman and how she ends up disappearing but she was never really there like she was never really clear to begin with and and this is also one where she doesn't this is a spoiler alert but like she never really reappears like it's it's i mean she she never reappears in the film but she only in a flashback yeah like there's there's a very vague hint as to what may have happened i mean i think it's pretty I don't know. It's it's vague, but um, sure. it falls into this sort of canon of films about the flightiness. Women just sort of like you're, you can't grasp them in your hand the way that you want to. They sure. they, they slip through your fingers, and I think the Daisy Buchanan syndrome. <laughs> mm-hmm, totally, yeah. And at first, I was like, "Oh, is is Raymond?" feel does he feel the same way about women and I feel like I wanted to say that but I think I don't think his motivations are sexual I think that he's like he just doesn't seem to be motivated by sex like he's motivated by success or just his weird little mind games but I think the only reason he really targets women is that he feels that they're like physically and maybe intellectually below him and I think that that's what makes some of the sequences between him and the women leading up to his interaction with Saskia so satisfying because they Mm -hmm. when they like the interaction between him and his daughter's like sports coach yes she she calls him out she you know he's like oh excuse me I'm looking for the pharmacy or something and she's like 
oh, I know you. You're um, Denise's father, right? Blah, blah. Oh, well, let's go get a coffee. And he's like, oh, no, like, I, I, I'm really in a rush, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, the pharmacy's right down the street. Like, if you're trying to do, like, there's plenty of women there for you. And it's so satisfying. And it's like, and then plenty of women put him in his place along the way as well. So that is a fun perspective on 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 his relationship with women. Yeah, I, 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 I the more I'm thinking about the the films that we're placing together, I think it is really important that not necessarily that they're from men, but the certain fetishization of that unknowability that is part of of so many of of those films. And and I mean, I guess you can even point to this with Ramon in the sense that one of the comments that he makes is, you know. Uh, kidnapping or murdering a prostitute is too obvious, I, I think is the language she uses. Which exactly. Is, which is like, you know, not only horrifying, but it really kind of gives you insight into this almost risk reward is a, is a feels like a bad mm-hmm. language given the context. But yeah, there's something odd about his r- relationship with women that it doesn't fit into those uh, traditional dynamics, even that you see with killers and sociopaths. Like, y- you know, like he gets asked the question about a mistress. And I I, I absolutely hmm. love that his wife is literally counting his miles. And she's like, yeah, mm-hmm. do you have a mistress? It's six miles each way, but it looked like you went 30 miles. <laughs> it's, it's uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it's something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right that it's not even about them, like, being women or it wasn't even about her because, like, his original target was that other woman who, when he finally figures out how to get a cast, which, by the way, I had totally forgotten about that. And that's really messed up that he needed to look more powerless. But I mentioned that because, like, his original victim, again, he picked because of circumstance and he just happened to sneeze and (laughs) that didn't work out anymore like the more i think about it i feel like this movie really condemns rex as kind of a shallow (laughs) loser in in a sense (laughs) yeah and he says you know he's he is doing this for saskia the Mm. search obviously and then the 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 reason he drinks the the coffee with sleeping pills. But um, that is just illogical. I mean, what good would this do for Saskia? Like, he knows it's not for her. He's doing this all for himself. And it's funny that at the end, he kind of goes a little bit insane in the coffin and he's calling out his own name. He's like, I am Rex Hoffman. (laughs) Remember me. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, he, I think he said he does call her name maybe or his final sort of plea, but like yeah. he's, he's alone. I mean, he's literally quite alone, but he must have wanted that in some sense to just completely isolate himself from everything. I mean, I think he feels this sense of guilt that he can't live with, even though the guilt is doing nothing to bring her back. It's like he let her disappear from right under his nose, like right after he said he wouldn't. And it could happen to anyone. Like, I don't blame him. This That's what's like so powerful about this incident that happens is that it's yeah. like he didn't do anything wrong, really. Even as you you can, like, try to trace their fight, you know, and obviously, like, the police would do that. Be like, oh, you had a fight. Maybe she ran away. Like, that yeah. has 
nothing to do with it. She was like trying to buy him a keychain. It's not like he needed to be like looking for her. Like that's what you do. You go into a rest station and use the bathroom and come right back. It's like, it's so banal. It could have happened to anyone, but he still feels this sense of guilt. And I think that's something that we can relate to, but I think that hopefully no one would take it as far as he does. Yeah. Oh, this, this verges on a question I really hate asking because it's almost (laughs) like what's real and what's not, that's not what I'm, (laughs) I'm just curious. Do you think anything that we're seeing is, is projection here. I, I mean, I know we already spoke to a couple surreal moments, but to speak to the point where uh, that we already uh, mentioned where he talks to that woman who he sees, who he's seen at volleyball games or, or things like mm. that. I, I think it's kind of odd because I could, <laughs> as has been the theme of this entire uh, conversation, like I think it could very, very legitimately go either way. <laughs> About whether it's supposed to be entirely grounded or whether we're supposed to take some of these as a little bit of a uh, of a touch of exaggeration. <laughs> mm. This is one read that you could have on it is that this is not what I think is true, but like it, it could work this way if you if you followed this through that Raymond doesn't exist, that like that is what Rex invented as a way to cope. And that was what his worst nightmare would be and he imagined his worst nightmare and that's sort of what he is what's happening i mean the sort of surreal elements like only really come into play once raymond comes into the picture and i think that it's almost like two different films like there's the yeah there's the before which is this very like naturalistic easygoing but sort of you know like touch of very very relatable like romantic drama going on between this couple and then there's the kind of weird like almost quirky kind of like comical side of with with Raymond where like he has his little like clarinet theme you know that he's like this comically bourgeois man and he he exists in this this other film that like that's like the French film and then there's the Dutch film which is like the the couple okay they're living in this other world and then their worlds just happen to collide to to intersect yeah yeah and it's interesting because Slyzer is born in Paris to Dutch Norwegian parents so he is like both French and Dutch and it's a French Dutch production you know (laughs) and like wow okay yeah so it's like sort of merging these two sides of of his personality and Crabbe actually when he was writing the novella consulted with Slyzer to find out more about like French French towns yeah 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 yeah. so he actually had a hand in well he ended up basically writing the script because he was disagreeing (laughs) with Crebe too much but like it's really a reflection of him in a lot of ways Saskia was cast as a redhead because his daughter had red hair like it this this film like feels like he really poured himself into it all of himself there was nothing left for sorry that's not nice I I love you George (laughs) Slyzer No, but I mean, it feels like these two these two worlds, um, one very grounded in reality and one very surreal. And I think it it also just speaks to like, you know, when when something like that happens to you, you enter into the surreal like you enter into like, I 
never thought that this could happen to me. This only happens in the movies. This only happens in my nightmares. Like Rex goes from being like a very like rational average person. He doesn't smoke, you know, he like just is a biker to being this like chain smoking, obsessive, you know, little private detective. And like, and then Raymond comes into his life. He doesn't even seem that surprised. Like he's, he's living in this dream world you know so i think that there definitely are elements of of the surreal that realistic as raymond's sequences are the more you think about them the less i mean the more of a caricature he becomes like rex and saskia are not caricatures it's like they're real and raymond is almost the caricature of a killer i mean yeah the more i think of it the more it feels like the film becomes sort of an exercise in in surrealism until the end when it cuts back to reality or the reality of a nightmare i don't know somewhere between nightmare and reality no no totally uh, Ramon's family is like is, is far too wholesome like yeah <laughs> it was it was a little creepy uh- <laughs> it is yeah, his family, his his like little coterie of doting women who, yeah, they're just, <sighs> they, they live this like country life and just walk by the river, take cute pictures. It's, it's very weird. Yeah. There's like a dozen spiders in that drawer and I would be <laughs> freaking out. And instead they <gasps> practice screaming. Uh- <laughs> they're, they're a little, I think they're a little like brainwashed by him. Yeah, you could probably make some uh, some speculations. You know what? We mentioned it briefly, but I just want to say I love the music in this movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like it is it is very much, you know, like an 80s uh, tonal palette, you know, like a lot of synthesizer versions of guitar and strings and like even a harpsichord is what, is what it might have sounded like at some point. But Mm -hmm. I think it works, like you use the word quirky, but it's like, it's such like, not oddball, but like it's lanky. (laughs) It's such a like a lanky quality uh, to it where it just like smooth guitar and then this really awkward bass comes lumbering in and then you have this saxophone (laughs) and it's like you know some of it's very familiar to but I still think it's really successful in here and you already pointed out like everyone kind of has their own theme in a very satisfying way Mm -hmm. and like yeah I mean there's none of like the ominous drone (laughs) when when Raymond comes on screen for instance no it's very light it has a light touch I think on the music and the only time it really gets into that like stereotypical horror film category is like is when something really really horrible is happening i mean i think of you know the the staccato sort of violins when when rex is going through that that decision in the rain yeah. of whether or not whether or not to drink the coffee there's a lot of like hitchcocky odes in in this film and that is maybe one of them. But other than that, like the main theme is pretty as 80s as it is, it's still kind of subtle and has that kind of like just sad kind of nostalgic overtone that it kind of already sets the tone for the fact that like things aren't going to end well. Yeah. Versus the theme that feels like it's from a completely different movie in Raymond's world. 
of like <laughs> the weird old scientist getting up to no good in his country house and oh he's so silly like it's just where did that come from it totally lightens the mood too like what could be more of an ominous moment becomes kind of like a just a yeah silly almost little interlude it takes a little bit of his power away. But if you, if you tell a neighbor, you know, I feel like I heard screaming last night and the neighbor's like, oh, I don't think I heard anything. I wouldn't worry about it. I, as the neighbor, I would be perturbed if someone just happened to mention <laughs> I heard human screaming. Or, or I, right. <laughs> it was like, um, oh. <laughs> yeah. They, they don't worry about the They don't sweat the small stuff in uh, the south of France. And for some reason, that's it's not a big deal. <laughs> I guess not. I, I won't I won't leave with uh, disparaging the, the French, though. <laughs> the last thing I wanted to ask, and we have done we've done so many examples. But just at the end, I like to ask if a listener enjoyed this film, what would you suggest they watch or read or uh, whatever uh, next? Yeah. I mean, related to, directly to the film, there's really wonderful interviews with, with George Slyzer and jo- uh, Joanna Tersteeg, the who plays Saskia, on the Criterion channel. So it's nice to hear their perspectives. And other than that, I mean, I, I think any of the films about the disappeared women. I just watched La Ventura again with the commentary from uh, the critic Jean Youngblood, which I can't recommend enough if you've seen the film mm. already. W- watching it at the same time as this movie really just sort of highlighted what it means when a film is about absence and, and what happens when sort of the main character is not there. And I think also just re-watching, re-watching the Hitchcocks would be interesting. I think re-watching Vertigo, Rebecca, or Psycho, which also has a disappearance main character would be cool after watching this movie those are all really well-known films I don't really have anything like that unpredictable to mention but I mean this film just colors my impression of a lot of a lot of things I hope you're not going to have another nightmare now now that you've talked (laughs) about it it, maybe you've also exercised (laughs) the the vanishing of, of Saskia and you won't have to think about Rex anymore. Here's hoping. (laughs) I've really buried that nightmare for the future. Wait, they buried the lead. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) How did it take us that long? Oh, no. Oh, no. I hate it. Okay. And again, I'd like to thank my sponsor, Mubi. Mubi is a curated streaming service with an ever-changing collection of hand-picked films. From new directors to award winners and from every country on earth, Mubi offers beautiful, interesting, incredible movies. A new one every single day, always chosen by them. Mubi is available to watch in 190 countries, and the films they pick are guided by local cultures and cinema. With over 9 million members around the globe, they are the world's biggest community of film lovers. And you can stream or download all of their movies anytime, on any screen or device, anywhere. And you'll never see a single ad on Mubi, ever. Try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash Filmstage. 
That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmstage for a whole month of great cinema for free. Well, that is our um, conversation uh, about George Slizer's The Vanishing. Sue, if people wanted to read more of your work or see your thoughts online, that that sounds really weird (laughs) when you say it like, (laughs) where, where can people follow you yeah um i am at sue gruder on twitter and you can read my work there i have a link to what my website on my on my twitter if you want to delve in <laughs> you can find me on twitter at at snidell i'm on letterbox just at my name thank you again so much for coming on to talk about this film it's, it's really been a pleasure to talk about it yeah thank you so much for inviting me this was Wonderful. Thank you so much for listening to Intermission, and we'll see you on the next episode. She vanishes from-